Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. This week, we look back at some of the best conversations we have with newsmakers from our region. We'll feature excerpts from six shows, including Tampa Mayor Jane Castor, who was re-elected in March, researcher Joseph Duturi, who spent 100 days living in an undersea habitat in the Florida Keys, and Weekly Challenger columnist Goliath Davis, who talked with us about parental rights and teaching black history. Political scientist Susan McManus weighs in on Florida's polarized politics. Retired newspaper columnist Bill Maxwell talks about his childhood as a farm worker, and we visit Three Rooker Island, where Tarpon Springs resident Christopher Powell reflects on changes to his favourite part of wild Florida. Jane Castor won a second term as mayor of Tampa in March. Before that, we went to City Hall to speak with Castor about her tenure over the previous four years. She talked about the region's transportation woes, sustainability and police reform in the wake of the death of Tyree Nichols and the abrupt departure of Tampa Police Chief Mary O'Connor. Here, she talks about the need to address housing affordability in Tampa's increasingly crowded housing market. I certainly understand and can empathize with those individuals that are asking for a rent control, but really it comes down to a supply and demand equation. We've got to be able to provide the housing in whatever form that is, anything from tiny homes, uh, multifamily, single family dwelling, whatever it is, we have to provide uh, the adequate supply for the overwhelming demand that we're having right now. And we, we are making great headway in that from the market level all the way down to subsidized housing. We have a goal of 10,000 affordable units by 2027, and we're already up uh, around or past 6,000. We just have to look at every possible avenue that we can address the housing crisis. And that includes transportation. Mm -hmm. Because if one, if we can have transit oriented development along some of the bus lines or other uh, mass transit solutions or initiatives, the streetcar, then you can take that cost of transportation off of someone's budget plate and they have more to put towards housing. So again, we are looking at this from every possible angle. I think one of the challenges with you know that transit-oriented design, though, cities that do it well, like developments and, and housing around those transit stops, the price of that skyrockets, right? Because people say I want to live on a, a tram line or a train line. So yes. you've got to. How do you kind of adjust for that to make sure that people don't get priced out? That's a that's a great question as well because as we grow, we have to ensure that that growth is very thoughtful, very intentional, and very inclusive. And so as we grow, we have to ensure that we aren't pricing individuals out of our community. And the solution to that, again, comes with not only the price of homes, but transportation solutions and also workforce development, Mm -hmm. making sure that you are providing those uh, high-skilled jobs that will pay, providing the training for trades, every possible job uh, that we can create that will provide an income that will allow our residents to afford to live in whatever neighborhood they want to reside in. 
Mayor Castor, you mentioned rent control a moment ago, and there is an affordable housing bill in the state legislature that would limit the ability of local government to set rent controls that would also limit certain local rules around density and building heights. Should local municipalities be able to set rent controls if they see fit? Well, there there already is legislation that prohibits uh, rent stabilization at mm-hmm. the state level. Uh, you also have to have had a housing survey, and we are in this particular budget, in our 2023 uh, budget, we have the funds to do that housing survey. So that'll be completed uh, by the end of the year. I certainly um, believe in home rule and that every municipality and county throughout Florida has different needs and requirements. And so allowing those leaders at the local level to have a say in how their uh, community develops, I think that's critically important. Tampa Mayor Jane Castor talking with Florida Matters last March. In June, University of South Florida researcher Joseph Duturi swam to the surface in Key Largo after spending a record-breaking 100 days living in an underwater habitat. We caught up with Duturi a few weeks later at his office in West Tampa. Turi's goal was to learn more about the effects of extended underwater stays on the human body. One of those effects, temporarily losing the ability to see far distances. So did your eyesight kind of degrade while you were down there? Yeah, so your vision's 20-20, right? Your vision... Uh, <laughs> with glasses, Well, maybe, with yeah. glasses, right? But it's 20-20 based upon the fact that you can see an object that's 20 feet away like it's 20 feet away. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see any further than 17 feet. That was my longest focal point that I could possibly see. And much of what I was looking at was very close. It was very near distant, right? Mm. So there wasn't like like here I can look across and I can see the, you know, the embassy suites over there. I could see the Hilton over here, the Holiday Inn over across the street. Mm. But I could not see that stuff down there and there was nothing far away to look at. Your uh, eyes kind of lose muscle tone? It's not a question of muscle tone. You just you just compensate to that over periods of time. Huh. So your eyes are so incredible that if you put on a pair of glasses, very famous experiment, if you put on a pair of glasses that turn your vision upside down, in a period of a few weeks, your mind will turn that vision right side up, mm. even though you're still looking at it upside down. Mm. That's how compensatory or that's how much compensation your eyes have. They're really cool, except when you only have a little bit to look. Yeah. Now, we've known this for years and years and years because I was in the Navy for 28 years as a diving officer and saturation diver. Mm -hmm. And what we did was when the submariners would go on submarines for long periods of time, we would tell them when you get off the boat, do not go and drive because Mm. you have bad vision because you've only been seeing short distances. So we call it myopia. Hmm. How long does it take to get that back? Mm. Took me about a week and a half, two weeks to start getting good vision back, but I was still in sensory overload for about a week and a half, two weeks. And then are you you also kind of like, stumbling around a bit for want of a better expression because you're it's like a different pressure different uh, physical environment you're in so the opposite i was actually it was harder to breathe while you were underwater because it was more dense of a breathing environment so Mm -hmm. (sighs) that breath Mm -hmm. takes a lot out of you when you're underwater it did not take that out of me so i actually felt really good from a cardiovascular standpoint but really i wasn't doing any cardiovascular work while i was down there so mm-hmm. i found myself yawning a lot and yawning is nothing but a way to remove co2 from your body so i was like huh okay yeah i'm yawning a little bit anytime mm-hmm. i exerted at all 
I'd have a buildup of CO2. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. That was interesting. And you, you were expecting some of these things? It was like, like oh, how yeah. much of this was kind yeah, of no, much of this was uh, Much of this was expected. Mm-hmm. The decrease in cholesterol was not expected at all. I dropped 72 points in my cholesterol, wow. and I have the same exact diet. Wow. So part of the, the rationale for this experiment, it's not just sort of figuring out like what it might be to spend that long and that kind of environment for deep space you're also thinking about practical implications for here on earth right so so oh, yeah what did you learn so interestingly enough on the surface i sleep between um 30 and 35 percent in deep and rem sleep that's common for most people mm-hmm. that's pretty good while i was underwater 60 to 66 percent in deep and rem so i doubled the amount of deep and rem sleep which means I doubled the restorative sleep. Wow. Which means I slept a whole lot better than I do on the surface. So. That was Joseph Duturi, a researcher at the University of South Florida, talking about his 100-day stay underwater. In April, we met with Goliath Davis, a columnist for the Weekly Challenger newspaper, which covers the Tampa Bay area's African-American communities. Davis had written a series of columns after a parent of an elementary school student in Pinellas County complained about the Disney movie Ruby Bridges being shown to second graders. It's based on the story of a six-year-old girl's experience with school integration in New Orleans during the 1960s. The complaint and reports that the movie had been banned at the school sparked an outcry over the role of parental rights in Florida's public schools. But a school board review committee decided to continue showing it as part of the school's curriculum. Davis talked about the importance of showing a film like Ruby Bridges to young students. Why is it important for second graders to see the movie? Well, when the second grade team researched who they wanted to present, they chose, according to the testimony that they gave at the review committee, Ruby Bridges because she was a sixth grader. She was relatable to second graders. And it demonstrated bravery. It demonstrated how you can overcome adversity. It demonstrated how you can use your voice for change in in society. Now, Ruby suffered through a lot of profanity as well as racial slurs. But now Ruby, the grown adult and her civil rights activism, preaches tolerance, love for one another, and emphasizes the fact that we are not born with the type of attitudes that were displayed towards her when she was a kid. Mm. So someone has to learn those things. So this movie gave the teachers an opportunity to teach how you overcome intolerance and things that you could do to make sure that it never happens again. Have you ever had an opportunity to to meet Ruby Bridges or or speak to her? No, we've been uh, reaching out because we we think that it would be appropriate if Ruby could come to St. Pete and uh, if not only the kids who saw the movie but other kids in the Pinellas school system could have an opportunity to meet her and and learn from her lessons. Now... What would you say to the parent who wrote to complain about the movie being shown to second graders? Well, you know, I, I respect the parent's right not to have her child view the movie, but I differ with her in her position that no one 
in second grade should view the movie, given that the vast majority of the parents who received the permission slips consented to their kids watching the movie. So parental rights are great, but that parental right should uh, basically deal with you and, and your offspring. You don't mm-hmm. have the right to tell other parents what to do as it relates to their kids in, in terms of education. So I asked you about the review process for this particular movie, and, and you said it was, it was well done. The school did what they could. It was very thorough. But I wonder, I mean, just in general, do you think the process of, of being able to raise a complaint like this, I mean, does it is it fair for material like Ruby Bridges? Does it open things up for bad faith challenges? Well, it does. It does. The law itself places everyone in, in an awkward position because, in my estimation, the school, the second-grade teachers, the whole team did everything that they were supposed to do. Everything they did was right. It was only when the parent decided to execute a formal process that things went haywire. That was Goliath Davis speaking with Florida Matters last April. We're listening back to some of our favorite interviews with newsmakers from 2023. When Florida Matters returns, we'll bring you conversations about the environment, politics, civil rights, and more. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to some of our favorite conversations with newsmakers from the greater Tampa Bay region in 2023. Over the summer, we launched a podcast that explores how the state's rapid population growth is affecting our lives. We called it Our Changing State. During the series, we highlighted people witnessing the changes, like the polarizing politics that has made Florida a testing ground for the nation. In this excerpt, I paid a visit to a local resident who's been steeped in the politics of Tampa Bay and Florida for decades. Pasco is among the top 10 fastest growing counties in Florida over the last decade, and driving through the county, growth and development are everywhere. But in Lando Lakes, not far from the big box stores and highways, a dirt road sheltered by tall pine trees leads to a slice of old Florida. Here, a white two-story farmhouse sits behind a huge oak tree. Hey there. Dr. McManus, how are you? I'm doing fine. Come on in. Thanks. A few years ago, University of South Florida Professor Emerita Susan McManus retired after 47 years teaching political science. But the 76-year-old is still a familiar name, face, and voice as a political analyst. This farmhouse and the property that sits on a small lake has been in McManus's family for 100 years. Today, it's a haven for animals like owls, bobcats, armadillos, and gopher tortoises. Oh yeah, there are three or four of them around here. Yeah. We have different names for them. The big one's Gramps. <laughs> and then there's George, and then there's Tiny. You know, those are the three main ones. They live along that fence line, that's their favorite. As we walk around the property, four deer wander past. Dotted around the garden leading down to the lake are animal sculptures McManus's mother designed from old farm machinery parts. My sister and I are really the only ones of the cousins that still love to swim in the lake, but we do. When she gets home in a couple weeks, we'll get out here and clean out these lily pads. We try to keep this area free for the boat and also just to swim. Have you ever had any close calls with an alligator? No, no not. Other than the Florida Gators, I'm a Florida State Seminole, so that's the only encounter we have with the Gators <laughs> football. This is really a, just an amazing spot. 
I wonder though, do you worry about the encroaching development? Do you wonder sometimes how long this place might stay the way it is? Of course we do. Uh, fortunately, across the lake is one of my relatives and uh, also the uh, local park abuts against the pond. They're not likely to sell out anytime soon, so we're pretty protected. But there are pieces of the lake that still are slivers that are owned by others, and you just never know. My whole career, when I'd have sort of an exasperating and exhausting day, I'd just come home, put on my shorts and t-shirt, take my shoes off, and walk down here and just, just breathe in the lake and the surroundings. It was very peaceful and still is. This is kind of your antidote to the wildness of Florida politics. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yes. We walk back to the farmhouse to talk about these changes she's seen in Florida's physical and political landscape. Tell me about how you got into politics. What drew you to this life? My family was always current events focused. Our discussions were always about what's going on and talking about why, and it was never a vicious discussion. When I went to Florida State as a freshman, I was planning on majoring in, of all things, physical education because I grew up with sports and I loved it. But once I got there, I had terrific teachers and the proximity to the Capitol, I would just find myself just walking down to the Capitol and walking around never realizing what I would do, but I changed my major at the end of my freshman year to poli-sci. As you were kind of talking about your family, as we toured the house, you were saying your parents were from different political parties and there, were, there was a lot of political diversity in your family overall. Right, a lot of diversity. The broader extended family includes everything from Baptist preachers to railroad union leaders and everything in between, mostly farmers in between. Yeah, we saw a lot of differences. I just grew up with it, and I think it made me a much better professor because at USF, at the beginning of every semester, I would ask my students what they were to give me a little bit of an idea, and I also explained to them before I asked, took the survey, I said, look, my parents are one of each, and I wouldn't have a job if it weren't for politics being different. And then I would ask them which way they leaned, you know, Democrat or Republican or what. And invariably, in my Florida politics class, it would almost be divided. And I never wanted to alienate by becoming ideological and forcing my views on others. I'm very adamantly opposed to that because it's one of the problems we have right now is people don't learn to listen to somebody else's viewpoint. When you look at what's happening in Tampa Bay area and some counties in particular, say Sarasota County, what strikes you as the most interesting or noteworthy things about how the landscape has changed politically in the last few years? Well, this area is still the most diverse. And so one of the things that's happened is the age makeup of the areas and some of the counties have changed. And a lot of that is driven by changing technology and a diversifying economy, which we've certainly seen in this area. But COVID is a prime example of how younger people migrated to this area. There were jobs, it was open. So politics have changed tremendously. When I was young, Pinellas was the first county to go Republican, and now it's a very competitive county. Sarasota, also Republican. More heavily Republican now than it used to be. Tampa, you know, a little bit more Democrat than Republican. 
It used to be the bellwether, but it's not anymore. The significance is that the in-migration changes everything. That was retired political science professor Susan McManus. Maximum Vantage is a collection of newspaper columns from Bill Maxwell. The book features almost 20 years of Maxwell's essays from the Tampa Bay Times on racism, living conditions for farm workers, Florida's environment, and much more. They all draw from his life experiences. In this excerpt, the retired columnist talks about life as a migrant farm worker. As a child, he traveled from Florida to New York annually for 16 years. A lot of your columns uh, in this collection focus on the plight of farm workers you know, from the early 2000s when you had advocacy groups like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers trying to improve the lot of farm workers. And I'm wondering, how did your upbringing inform how you approach issues of labor and immigration and how, how you wrote about them in your, in your columns? Yeah, I, I grew up as a farm worker and um, I knew the, I, I guess I knew the, the, the real deprivation. The, the whole life is, uh, is one of deprivation. There's no respectability. You don't have access to, to certain things. For example, we would, we would live in towns here in Florida where we were in camps 20 miles from town, sometimes maybe just five miles. But we were not permitted to come into, the, into town. You could not live in town. So we were, we were an isolated people. And uh, it, it did a lot to make me uh, fully aware of where, where I belonged. And it also made me uh, become very fiercely independent. Mm-hmm. I had to do things for myself. And I'm that way now, you know. I'd, to hell with it. You do it yourself. And uh, it's st- still there. And it came from being um, a migrant kid. I lose count sometimes. I attended 14 to 17 different schools growing up because we never stayed long enough, you know, to finish out mm. a term except in a few places. So I was always a stranger, always, and uh, I feel that way now. <laughs> but but you had that you you had that family that had instilled this love of reading with you, and you, yes. you were able to kind of keep that yes. with you from school to school. Yes, the the family was uh, all you had, really. Hmm. One or two uh, friends, and then you know you met in the camps, but it was your, you had to re- rely on your family for almost everything. Yeah, and you would never had a field boss, guys who ran the. Uh, the crews in the fields, we never had one who was a kind person. Hmm. They were always out to, to make a buck. So they use you, you know, you you got everything on credit. And uh, that was a bad thing because hmm. you, were, you were never out of debt. So many people could never leave the crew leader ever because you were indebted to him so much. Hmm. You know, so we had, we had that fate also. I guess the uh, you know, farm workers now are a different group of people from uh, yes. when when you were growing up. I mean, yes. probably not so many African Americans are part of that sort of migrant. Yeah, very few. Progression. We, the, the big joke, but it's true. Once the Civil Rights uh, Act was passed in 1964, uh, we could work inside <laughs> for the first time. So we became waiters and waitresses. There was nothing glamorous about being a farm worker, except uh, to me was the. The, the travel, physical terrain. I, I'm still a lover of, uh, you know, of nature, and uh, and I learned that from being, uh, being on, being out in the woods and on farms. You know. That was former newspaper columnist Bill Maxwell. We talked with Maxwell about his collection of columns called Maximum Vantage. 
In this excerpt from our podcast, Our Changing State, we meet 52-year-old Christopher Powell. He was born and raised in Florida and now lives in Tarpon Springs with his backyard dipping into St. Joseph's Sound on the Gulf of Mexico. Here he is talking last summer with WUSF's Jessica Mazaros on his boat at Three Rooker Island, just a couple of miles away from his home. Why did you want to come to this area in particular? What does this place mean to you? Uh, everything, you know, it's just childhood memories. My earliest memories were on the, the North Bar over here. I was three years old. I can remember coming out and the, the white sands being so bright I couldn't see. You know, I was a little baby, you know, and didn't have sunglasses. I just remember just, just loving it, but I couldn't open my eyes very much. It's so bright and beautiful. Why do you think that stood out to you so much? I think I'm a you know, aficionado of the natural beauty of this area. You know, it's not the Keys, it's similar, but the Keys have their own beauty. Miami has its own beauty, and this is home. Can you describe for listeners who can't see what it is that we're looking at? What does your home look like? I like to say my church, this is my church. Depending on the time of year, you know, early spring, May is my favorite time. Just getting out of that before it gets too hot. And you can see the water, it's just emerald green, beautiful. Birds everywhere fish everywhere, stingrays. There's not a day I haven't been out here I haven't seen something different. So what changes physically have you noticed of this area? Well, when I was a kid, I don't remember there being very many trees. We didn't really go this far south. We were always up on the north point over here, that one right there. And uh, it didn't have anything but some, you know, some bushes on it. Back in 2015, I was sitting on the dock and looked and there was a big hole in the trees and I was like whoa out of nowhere there was a you know significant gap you know day after day month after month year after year it just slowly peeled apart to where you see it now it's it's a mile apart it's just a little you know disheartening to to watch it what else have you noticed in terms of like more people coming through oh it's insane here on the weekends um scallop season Last year at the mouth of the Anclo River is where they were finding them. Uh, there must have been a 1,000 to 2,000 boats. I never saw anything like that, not even in Homosassa, because it was more concentrated. But, uh, you know, we're a tourist state, so that's what they're there for. You know, hopefully the science keeps it regulated in the, in the right direction as we uh, go further. With the global warming certainly not helping this bar and the, all the boat traffic, what are you going to do? People like to play in the sun. What is it that you seek when you come here? The beauty of it all. It's eye candy for me. I mean, it's the best. We don't have mountains here. I love mountains too, but we have this. And do you talk to your daughters about what it used to be like and the changes that you've seen? All the time. All the time they get sick of hearing it, I'm sure. (laughs) Stop living in the past, Dad. When you're out here kind of in the silence do you think about the future of this place for your children oh absolutely you know i think about well where i live is 30 years the water is going to be 15 inches higher can i live there you know (laughs) what's it going to be like when i have a little storm go through not just a hurricane these little storms you know i've had it quite a bit of flooding in the backyard at times that's you know big cleanup but it's never come in the house it's certainly uh Every year it gets a little higher and higher, and hopefully it's, it's not a runaway train worse than what the, the scientists think it's going to be. That was Christopher Powell of Tarpon Springs speaking with WUSF last summer. 
After this interview was recorded, we learned that Hurricane Idalia brought 11 inches of water into Powell's home on St. Joseph's Sound. He told WUSF he lost most of his furniture. That's our show for today. Next week, the Florida legislative session begins, and we'll bring you live coverage Tuesday morning of Governor Ron DeSantis' State of the State speech that kicks off the session. Florida Matters will follow with analysis. Subscribe to Florida Matters wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Steve Newborn. Production assistance from Mary Shedden. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.